0: The clientele is changing dramatically. The workforce is not. The administration has decided to empower the same people, structures, and systems that caused harm to people of color in the first place.
1: Knowing that they might experience trauma as a professional.
2: We do hear some really specific examples of racism in the schools. Is, is, is this an emergency? This is not
3: going to be If you think the people that have made change, they didn't cry at night, didn't feel lonely, identify, ostracize. That's not true. Change doesn't happen without
2: a little bit of pain. Plant those seeds and become those teacher encouragers. If you love this profession, be a teacher encourager.
4: I am a Teach Plus Rhode Island Policy Fellow. Teach
2: Plus
3: Rhode Island. And I'm a Teach Plus Rhode Island plus Policy,
0: uh, Rhode Island policy a Fellow. I am a Teach Plus Rhode <inaudible> Island I'm Fellow. A, I'm a Teach Plus Rhode Island
5: Okay, so hi, my name is Paige Clausius Parks, and I am a senior policy analyst at Rhode Island Kids Count. Rhode Island Kids Count is a statewide children's policy, advocacy, and research organization. And we work to improve the health, the early learning and development, economic well being, education, and safety of Rhode Island's children, with special attention for the children who live in poverty. Um, so we do this through a variety of ways Um, one way that most people know our work is through our every year we publish the Rhode Island kids count fact book the fact book is tracks 71 indicators of child well-being um, in Rhode Island and it's a big huge data what's happening with children and how that's measured Um, through different data points. And so it's a really large publication. It's available, anyone could download it for free on the rikidscount.org. And we hope that the data is helpful um, for advocacy purposes, for policy making, um, for program development. So folks are kind of wanting to know what is needed. Um, for programming and for fundraising and philanthropy. Um, it's really, uh, it's a great book, it's a labor of love, um, but we, we see that it comes in handy a lot. So that's what's our major, major piece of work that we do every year. Um, we also lead many different campaigns um, that brings together that data and the research and the people that are doing this work, uh, we try to bring all of that together through some of our initiatives that we run. As in the beginning of our fact book, we track seventy-one indicators of child well-being, and poverty is one of the indicators that is interconnected in all of the areas that we look at. Um, poverty has direct impact on every single piece of what um, a child experiences, their access to opportunities, their social emotional well being, as well as their health and safety. Um, When a child is in poverty, or they live in an area that has a high concentration of poverty, they have less opportunities For high-quality education, there's usually less resources to help enrich their educational experiences. And their families are often struggling to to live every day, right, to meet the basic needs. The Rhode
6: Island Standard of Need, or RISEN, calculates a basic needs budget for two different family configurations in a single adult. It also shows how work support programs can help close the gap between earnings and expenses when earnings are not enough. Here are some of the key findings of the 2018 Rhode Island Standard of Need. Raising a family in Rhode Island is expensive. It costs a single-parent family $55,000 and a two-parent family $60,300 to raise a toddler and a school aged child. It costs a single adult $21,800 to meet his or her basic needs. Many Rhode Island families do not earn enough to make ends meet. To meet these expenses, households need gross earnings of between six dollars and $7,000 over expenses in order to account for taxes. Far too many households do not earn enough to meet their basic needs. In fact, 67% of single-parent families with two or more children don't make the $62,800 they need, 28% of two-parent households with two or more children don't make the $68,000 they need, and 43% of single adults don't make the $27,000 to meet their basic needs. Recent calculations highlight the inadequacy of the federal poverty level as a measure of economic security. The annual Census Bureau report documenting the number of Americans living in poverty undercounts the number of families struggling to make ends meet. Working families with young children need income over two and a half times the federal poverty level to meet their basic needs in Rhode Island. And
5: we know as educators, right, there's a hierarchy of needs if you study mass right? So in order to um, meet the challenges and the high demands of being able to perform at a certain educational level that we expect of our children, if children first need to have those basics met, right? Need to have food, um, stable shelter, um, they need to have their health taken care of. If they don't have those needs met, it's really hard to expect a child to be able to do and to perform at higher levels if they're just, their basic needs are not able to be met or it's a large, it's a huge struggle and a burden on a family to make uh, to meet those basic needs. Um, so as educators, it's really important to keep that in mind and to understand um, in Rhode Island and our public schools, um, it's 48% of our students in public schools um, qualify for free and reduced lunch. So it's not just, we have just, it's not just a few kids who are living in poverty. It's a very large percentage of our public school students. And then even more so, there are some families that maybe don't qualify for free or reduced lunch, but they're still struggling. Um, and I think we all can understand what struggle feels like and the additional stress and trauma that can bring to a person. So as educators, we need to remember that. And we need to be able to craft what we're doing in our classroom, keeping the whole child in mind. Um, Because I feel our, our roles as teachers is of course to instill a love of learning and to help all of our children to reach their full potential.
3: Pierre. I am a Teach Plus Rhode Island policy fellow. I'm technically a senior fellow. This is my second year involved in the fellowship. I teach 11th grade English at Hope High School in Providence, Rhode Island. I'm also an elected member of the school committee in Jamestown, Rhode Island, where my daughter is currently in the fourth grade. And this is actually my 13th year as a classroom teacher. Teaching was a career change for me. I worked for a number of years in advertising and nonprofit before I went back to school to become a teacher, and now I teach in Providence, and I love it because I am a graduate of uh, the Providence Public School System myself. I went to the high school there, and it's nice to be home. <laughs> Kids Count is—they uh, do so many things. They just actually released their fact book, yeah. which is a. Uh, collection of data that they mine about youth. Um, They do issues with hunger, they do issues with juvenile justice. I got involved with their student-centered learning roundtable. Some of the things that we worked on through that, um, it's the student-centered learning leadership roundtable. So it is educators, superintendents, principals, and kids. There are a number of kids from different organizations, including the Providence Student Union, Youth in Action, um, and a couple of other groups. So literally getting teenagers to the table to involve them in the conversation. And earlier this year, I actually brought a couple of my students from Hope um, to weigh in because one of the big things that we worked on there is discussing the advisory period and how that is currently being used at different schools to promote student-centered learning. And what we realized is that there are huge differences in how different schools and different school districts are using that advisory time period. Um, And so we started to look at some of those different models and really focus in on What was it that seemed more, um, yeah, I don't want to say more effective, but more useful to the students um, from the student perspective in terms of what it is that they would like to see that they're able to get out of that advisory period. One of the other things that came out of that group was we had some conversations shortly after the bond passed um, to give schools money for facilities.
0: Hello, my name is Brendan and I am a sophomore Hope high school. My name is Justin and I'm also a sophomore at Hope High School. We are both student leaders of the Protestant Union.
4: Imagine you're sitting with your new classmates the freshman orientation when out of nowhere, part of the ceiling starts falling down. Your administrators have to hurry you out of the building we have to bring you out of the auditorium and to everyone, for everyone else's safety, administrators are shouting we have to evacuate this area. And this really happened, and that's what it's like at Hope High School and many other schools in Rhode Island with old buildings. Our schools are falling apart. It is a safety has not only just changed but all the teachers and everyone else in the building. And as a sophomore the Hope High School band. We were getting ready for a performance. We had known all of the it's every threat and every scale, but right before the performance, the teacher had to tell us that we could not do the performance in the auditorium because the stairway there had flooded, and we obviously couldn't transport the equipment up. It was a huge
0: disappointment. Nobody would want to come to school if the buildings continue to deteriorate. Me. I've seen it firsthand, and I hope many students don't feel proud of our school because of how it looks. And for those who say the students needed to take better care of the building, how can you expect students to keep the school clean if adults aren't even making sure the building is repaired? The Rhode Island Department of Education wrote in a 2013 report, it has been long accepted that the condition and design of the school buildings has a direct impact on academic performance. Who spent six and a half hours every day in school. That means spending 1,170 hours every every year in a building that is not always structurally sound. Hope was built in 1890, which is 117 years ago. And Hope is not only the old school in the state, not only in the state, speaking. The average age of schools in Rhode Island is 60 years. It's about time to fix our schools. Our schools do don't have uh, to be like this. Let's fix schools now so further generations can have a safe and healthy place to learn. We are asking that you end the moratorium on school construction. Our school buildings are in desperate need of repair. Let's not waste any more time. Students in Providence and across Rhode Island need you to take action. We are asking you to budget the funds necessary to bring all of our schools up to not just the safe and healthy standards, but to make them a place where students are excited to go to school every single
3: day. And we started to have some conversations about how do you design or renovate a facility in order to support student-centered learning. So we looked at a couple of schools that are a little bit newer um, and have sort of those models where the classroom walls can kind of be broken down and shifted around and you can move the space and transform it based on whatever that student-centered initiative is at the time. This school year uh, we started working on school climate and discipline and different types of evidence-based measures that could build a positive school culture and uh, this actually became really important to me because Uh, Jamestown where I serve as a member of the school committee I'm also on the policy subcommittee in Jamestown and one of the things that we did earlier this school year was here in Jamestown we revised our suspension policy which was last updated sometime in the 70s and changed it to be a student conduct and positive behavioral intervention policy Where it kind of moved away from just being punitive and about punishment and more into kind of marrying up with that social emotional learning piece where what we really want to do is figure out what is it the root cause of this behavior and how can we adjust it, right? Adjust the behaviors and have this be a learning process for the student as opposed to just, you know, you were wrong, you need to be punished here, you're suspended. Jamestown only has schools that go K through eight. And one of the things that I got involved with in a number of conversations is there was a piece of legislation that the ACLU sponsored um, and was looking to get backing from Kids Count and from other educators. And basically um, this bill was brought to the house as we shouldn't be suspending kids K through fifth grade um, because they're still learning, they're still, you know, forming habits, they don't have the executive functioning skills, and they don't have those, they don't have the capacity to regulate their emotions properly and handle stress or other situations that might be misconstrued as punitive.
4: about trauma and are you involved in any policies uh, involved just uh, kind of as an extension of that poverty piece
6: uh, that is
5: a really great question so some of our indicators that we track includes safety of young people so we have a whole section in our, in our fact book around safety and that includes youth violence gun violence homeless and runaway youth, youth referred to family court, youth in training school, um, children of incarcerated parents, um, children who witnessed domestic violence, child abuse and neglect, and um, children who are involved in DCYF care. Um, And through all of our child well-being work and through those indicators of the fact book, you know, trauma comes in and out and is talked about extensively. Um, as a interweaving issue for all of those indicators. And we do we actually were planning to testify this legislative session around some trauma-informed school legislation that was introduced. And then you know the legislative session this year was stopped because of clearly um, the health needs right now with COVID-19. so we're not quite sure where that's going to pick up. But we absolutely are in support of raising awareness around how trauma influences children and all of their aspects of well being, especially in education.
7: Hi, my name is Kristen Bieland. I am a Teach Plus Policy Fellow and alumni. Social emotional learning is basically just giving the child, what they need, both through their emotions and their social setting in order to academically excel. And that needs to come first. You know, it's kind of funny because we all kind of take for granted things that we do. We tend to just do things sometimes. There are just things in life you naturally excel at. And I feel like for me, it's always kind of been building a relationship with my students. It's just something that has always driven the heart of why I teach. And now we have this whole era of why we need more social emotional learning in the classroom. And at first I was like, well, isn't this just what we're doing anyways? And my principal said something very powerful to me. She corrected me and she goes, you know, we you say the word we a lot and who is we you seem to be under the assumption that everybody does things very similarly to you or maybe others around you and it really made me step back and kind of look at what was going on around me and that there were a lot of educators who approached their classroom and their safety and their students very different than I do. I had been together with a team of people for years where we all kind of had the same philosophical mindset of how we would approach education. And uh, the team dismantled for different reasons, people grow and move and change. And I started to look around and realize I was very fortunate to have like minded educators around me for so long. And I think at the heart of it, we all want to put our students first, but with the pressures of our evaluations and scores and data driving the force of what is expected from us as teachers, sometimes it falls by the wayside. And so, um, over the course of many years, my school has rapidly changed both socially, economically, in diversity, and we found that there needed to be a greater need for sel in our schools so we put together a team of people my principal and i and we started looking into what it meant to become a trauma-informed school and then we took all of what we learned and we brought it back to our staff and together the entire staff embraced the idea of trauma and what it means to be trauma-informed and how that was going to be the driving force of how we handle the relationships with our kids and our families in our school from there we started looking at resilient learners and restorative practices and we started putting more efforts towards these um, initiatives in place and i think because we have been doing all of this it's why we're being so successful at remote learning right now so my school is at like 70% poverty and many of our kids have no access to internet or vehicles. And yet we have been able, and granted we are a district that is one-to-one devices, but we have been able to get our students in our school pretty consistently on. And in this remote learning situation, my class in particular, I have 98 to 100% attendance every single day. And the only thing I can attribute that to is the relationships that I start from the very first day of school with my students and my families. The fact that we went above and beyond to create an SEL team within our school. And we truly believe that each school needs to be funded with its own support staff of mental health professionals. We have a school psychologist, we have a school social worker, we have a behavioral specialist, along with two IEP teachers. We're very, very fortunate to have that. And I know that comes down to funding. But with that funding, we used our title funds the best way possible to make success for our students. From that SEL team, we kind of branched out to a larger team. So they're the core and heart of our SEL team, but we kind of understood as a staff, down to custodians, our, um, our lunch women, That we are all a part of that SEL team and that it takes every single one of us to make a child successful. And when the mindset shifted and changed in my school, so did our kids. And they truly know that they are surrounded by a community of people who will rally around them to make them safe, to help them, to support them and make sure their needs are met in order for them to come to class and be academically successful. And I I watched it work, and I, I, I want to see this happen in more places. And so recently I testified about why we need to release funding in Rhode Island to have more money given to schools, to have more mental health professionals. So Because my hope is that we're able to see this type of a model spread throughout our state. I think if we do, we're gonna have greater success with academics, but we're also gonna have healthier human beings.
2: Uh, hello, my name is Stacy Jones. I am a Teach Plus Rhode Island fellow. So, um, social emotional learning uh, (SEL) is really just kind of a fancy way to say holistic learning, which is what we called it 15 years ago when I uh, changed careers and went into uh, to get my teaching degree. Um, and it really, just means we need to teach the entire student, and that is things. Um, like building self-awareness or self-management skills or responsible decision making, collaboration and relationship skills, social awareness. So really it's all of the kind of commute kind of skills that help people not manage just academically but manage socially, how to manage their emotions. Um, so they're just more complete student within their high school career and once they move on, pass that into a a job or college. So that's kind of how, um, why SEL is kind of being, um, I guess you could say advocated more now, uh, because as we see the depression levels of students rising um, and a lot of dysfunctional situations outside of the family happening. So lately, um, what I'm trying to do is combine my goals for educator diversity with SEL. Um, And I think they connect in two strong ways, um, which I'll explain in a second. But what I recently did through my SEL in action group, I hosted a community gathering to really try to elevate the topic, maybe start an initiative of why a diverse educator workforce is important to social emotional learning. Um, And so I got a good response from that. There seems to be, there was never any talk, there's never been a real strong connection for people that advocate for social-emotional learning to also advocate that a key component of it is a diverse workforce. But if we agree that students' engagement and student connections um, increase when there's a diverse teaching staff or when teachers Um, can relate to their experiences, or even just that teachers reflect how they look. Um, That's all statistically um, supported. So it's pretty natural to me to say then this needs to be an element of social-emotional learning as well for it to reach its full uh, potential. But the other way social-emotional learning is effective even outside of, say, the classroom is we can come back to hiring. When we think about all the reasons social-emotional learning is effective for students, are the same reasons it's effective in how, for example, a principal would relate to their staff.
7: Welcome, everybody. Thank you for being here on the Commission the Special Legislative Commission to study and provide recommendations to encourage more people of color to enter the field of education. So I'd like to call the meeting to order.
1: Hi, Christine Freck from Teach for America. I have a question, but I think it's also part of a discussion. Something that you said that I hear often as well is around trauma that educators are facing when they go into school settings. And it was one piece, but I actually think it's a really important note is to talk about bringing on brand new teachers or potentially veteran teachers and knowing that they might experience trauma as a professional and so I think that that is something that we all need to dig into both as a part of this commission but also in the work that we're doing at RIDE because it isn't something as simple to say well and they're experiencing trauma you know move on with with data it's actually very indicative of our school systems if adults are experiencing trauma in their identity we have to be reflective on what that means for our students as well. Um, And so I know that that is an area that I would be very interested in thinking about and thinking about what it means to talk about and to change for our educators of color and for our students. Um, And so I don't think that there is a one-off answer, but I think it's something that is worth illuminating and ensuring that we're speaking into space.
2: It's also effective in a way that you would want to connect to interviewees because you are addressing the entire person, which is really what you want to explore, whether it's in an interview or to get to know a staff member. So SEL for the moment has been limited to students, to classroom strategies. But as I said, when I was in school uh, getting my teaching degree, it really was Holistic. And it's really just about human nature and what are the best ways to have human connections and have human interactions kind of reach their maximum potential. It's a high level skill for anyone to have, not just something that is effective in the classroom to engage students, you know, in homework.
4: My name is Raymond Steinmetz. I am a Teach Plus senior policy fellow. Thank you for listening to the Teach Plus podcast. Please join us next week as we discuss Rhode Island's efforts to improve educational outcomes for multilingual learners throughout the state. Look for new episodes every Friday on all major podcast platforms.